Hi everyone and welcome to the Write-Up First Publishing's podcast on writers, writing, all things writerly. Uh, my name's Rob Wickings, I'm a writer. My name's Rob Maythorn and I'm an editor. That's marvellous, isn't it? Um, welcome back after a, a little bit of a hiatus. Um, we've been involved in various fun, cool projects moving into the second half of 2015, which um, I'd love to be able to talk about, but I think Rob would um, probably take out a lung or something like that if I did. Secret plans, Rob, secret plans. Secret plans. Can't be doing with that, can we? Um, What we want to talk about this time round is, um, it's probably something that's going to be slightly more pertinent as we move towards the sort of October, November, NaNoWriMo bit, but I was mumbling around on the internet as i inevitably do and came across uh, a very interesting link which was titled how to write a book in three days which instantly piqued my interest as of course and it would do any kind of author but Mm. um this is talking specifically about renowned fantasy author michael moorcock rightio who we may have heard of, um, writer of books like the Elric series, the um, Jerry Cornelius um, bizarre science fiction spy series and things like that. But basically, this guy has written loads and loads and loads of books. And prolific is the word. Prolific. prolific is the word. Thank you very much. Um, and it kind of got me thinking as I was reading this about prolific authors and how they do what they do and what processes they use to be able to crack out this incredible output that some of them do. I mean, um, Moorcock basically earned his living and and basically earned his chops through um, banging out pulp fiction very, very quickly to order under very, very tight deadlines. And towards the end of that bit of his career, before he actually got got to be sort of a, a well-known author that actually got decent money for what he was outputting as opposed to sort of the subsistence stuff he was on was being able to crack out a 60,000 word novel incredibly quickly and I think there's lessons there that we we, we as writers can take on. I really agree with that I think that as some of you may know my, my leaning is more on the, on the business side of running verse rather than the writing side of inverse. Mm. And whilst I don't push my authors to turn out books in six days, thank goodness for that. I think uh, I think that, the, that Michael has Michael Moore has a great idea about that kind of that churning of of stories. Mm. And I think aside from that business side of things, I think if you can, whilst I wouldn't recommend three days, if you can get a framework in place so that you can write faster and smarter, you're going to write more. Mm. And there's nothing that's going to help writing more, you're writing more, than writing more. The more you write, the better your writing is going to be. It's like, any, it's like any muscle. The more you exercise it, the stronger it's going to be. And imagine, I suppose, something like this, that the, the uh, Michael Moorcock's three days writing style is just a very focused sort of set of workouts. Mm. Well, let's, let's dig into that a little bit and, and see exactly... I've, I've got um, an interview, this interview that he put up that was basically entitled How to Write a Book in Three Days, Lessons from Michael Moorcock, that um, was published back in 2009. And it's it's a real kind of 
it's it's a handy little set of rules um number one of which if you're going to do a piece of work in three days you have to have everything properly prepared and i know we've talked quite a lot in the past about um discovery versus planning writing i think mm. the trick here if you if you are going to want to try to bang out a, a piece of long form writing very very quickly after work is in actually getting everything on the table and ready to go before you start so you don't necessarily have to have everything set in stone but you certainly need to have what rob was calling a framework mm -hmm. and i've i've kind of talked before about the best way of doing this is to actually take say sixty thousand words as as a as a good round figure and break it up into sections so for a sixty thousand word novel you'd break each you break it into four acts each fifteen thousand words and within that then you break into four or five parts and then from there four or five chapters sorry so from there you've instantly got this framework where you can start plugging in events um for something like fantasy science fiction or the sort of pulp books that uh, moorcock and people like that um wrote to order you really want there to be a lot of action so you're looking at effectively an event every four page or every four pages and those events will help to move the story along and that's what you want you want full forward momentum i think that's very true i think the one thing that i take away from moorcock's structure is that when he says he wrote a book in three days that's the physical act of sitting and writing a book mm. it's not that he went from idea to completion in three days the basically he front front loads his process yeah so he will spend time and initially given the, the pulp he was writing it wasn't a lot of time he has spent time planning the structure coming up with as he says fantastical ideas deliberate paradoxes so i think he comments on one he quotes one as the city of screaming statues <laughs> which is a wonderful phrase and like, he literally had a list of these things the city you know, the city of this the sword of that the stone of this the mirror of this hmm. he had this list to 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 to, to, what to do it as he says when you hit a, a point in the story where you're like i don't know what to do here you've already got a list of ideas to wade through and I think that we obviously being a writer isn't like, I don't know, like a more technical job out there. Mm -hmm. And it can be even inspirational and it can be much more kind of free flowing. But I think that there's a lot of value in having that within the past, a book of ideas, mm. a book of inspirations. And this is much more, a much more focused version of that in that I know I'm writing fantasy. Here is a list of fantasy things mm. that I can use in this book. I can use this trope, this character, this image. And that's where he's putting the work in. And I certainly, from a editorial point of view, would heartily recommend for a lot of my authors, if you put more work in at this phase, it's going to pay off. Because if you don't have this kind of, this sort of structure around for you to work in, this kind of pool of resources, mm. if you make a change in that book, or you hit a slump in that book, you've got nowhere to go. If you've got a library full of ideas and things you can just kind of throw at your throw at your scenes, that can keep you writing. Yeah. And genuinely, as Rob says, keeping writing is the biggest thing. You might write crap, like we said, with anonymity. You might write stuff that dropped on the line, but the only way you're going to get through a slump is going through it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a quote from... Um, I can't remember the name of the author now. I picked it up on Twitter the other day. And it basically says, I can fix a bad page. I can't fix a blank page. Exactly. So, you know, this is something we, we talk about an awful lot here on the write-up. And it's a very important thing is a writer writes. You have to be writing. And what the Morcock method basically does is give you a good framework to be able to plug stuff in and actually power through and do something so if you get an idea for a, for a story you've already got that base framework in mind sure you can juggle it around a bit once you've once you've actually once you actually know what you're doing but at the same time you really need something to be able to fit into gaps as opposed to just having this big 60,000 word bucket to pour words into mm. it's actually easier to have but the bucket's almost like a bad bad way of putting it. Say you want to build a wall, a wall's made, a wall's made of bricks, and each brick is is part and parcel of the whole, but you can handle a brick, you can't handle a wall. Does that make uh, sense? Uh, the, the analogy that I would use, and I've used in the past, is I want a picture. Yeah. You can choose between me handing you a jigsaw or me handing you a set of paints. Right. And... The jigsaw is going to be easier to put together because all the bits are there. They need to be put in the right order, but they're all there. If you're looking to, obviously, you can with with painting come up with some amazing things. Mm. But if you're looking to put that all together, having all those bits already done is going to make it far easier for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say that um, that there's there's one point that Morcock makes very easy, very very quickly in this um, in this little collection of, of quotes of the interview is in that he he basically bases most of his stories around the idea of the quest mm. and the quest theme which is which is absolutely right it's absolutely brilliant way of way of actually getting getting a story rolling you know here's an object everyone's after it who's going to win it's a great story and it works pretty much for everything it will certainly work for you know science fiction everyone's after a power source uh, fantasy everyone's after a magical sword even things like romance you know you can have the girl who wants the boy or the boy that wants the girl yes it's it, it, it's about an objective that a hero or a heroine needs and all the obstacles that are in the path to get to that final goal I, yes, I, I, one of the things that's kind of linked to that, I will say, is that he talks a lot about time in his interview. Hmm. That it's important when you sort of set up these these quests to give it a time frame. So we have six days of the world. We've got a week to find this sword. We like, everything has to have a time frame. Hmm. And I think that that's a very that's a very, very very small thing, but I genuinely think that would improve a lot of writing that certainly I see. In that, if you have to give them a reason to care. As in the protagonist. Yeah. If something is is broken, but, you know, there's no real time frame, there's no urgency to fix to it, then they haven't got an urgency to come to, come to call to arms. You haven't got an urgency to the story. Hmm. Giving your story on your protagonist a time frame or a deadline, even if you then change that deadline, even if, you know, middle of the film, middle of the, middle of the book, you forgo it entirely for a whole other story, to get that protagonist going... You have to give them a time frame, and to get us as an audience in a time frame really helps. Yeah, a ticking clock is ab is the perfect motor to keep a story going. Absolutely. Mm. Um, one of the neatest ways of doing that, that I ever saw was um, Logan's Run. the The novel of Logan's yes. Run is very, very clever in that the um, 
the chapter titles actually count down. So it actually starts with chapter 15 and counts down to chapter zero. So you've got that sort of motor going on all the way through. Mm. And it works brilliantly. I mean, it's one of one of my favourite sort of vaguely pulpy science fiction books ever. And it amazes me that it's taken this long to actually consider a remake, even after the sort of 1976 version, which has, which has its charms, but it's not the book. The book is the most propulsive, pulpy piece of science fiction you'll ever read, and it's so, so worth your time. Yeah, I think that... Uh, I, I cannot remember the book, but I was reading a science fiction book, mm. and that all the chapters that were one upwards, but they all come with, like, seven days till... Um, seven days till the event. Yeah. And that's not really commented on for the first half of the book, and you don't know what this event is, but it gives every chapter a real feeling of kind of urgency, even when like, the, the, the chapters aren't very urgent. You're kind of like, I know it's two days, it's two days that this thing happens, yeah. and you're eating cake. <laughs> Why are you eating cake? And Stop I eating cake. Exactly, and that's a situation where the audience have a deadline that the protagonists don't. Mm. But that can be used to great effect, and I think that Moorcock is, is correct in the stories, be it in the text or in the metatext, need a urgency. Hmm. Uh, they need a, 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 an immediacy that, uh, to, keep, to keep them going. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, he, he also mentions, sort of, towards the end of, of the interview, he mentions a guy called Lester Dent, who mm. fascinates me as a character. Well, there's a, there's a couple of these guys that, are, that were kind of sort of super prolific, you know, hyper prolific. Uh, Lester Dent um, was known for churning out upwards of 200,000 words a month in his job, which is just extraordinary. And he would just bang out stuff in all genres um, pretty much to order. Mm. Um, and you know for a fact that he was working with a very clear framework in mind. He knew pretty much you know, how long his chapters were going to be, start, middle, end, what was going to be happening and when it was going to be happening. And then from there, he could basically take a, a simple idea, um, you know, the, the, the hunt for a nuclear isotope or something like that and preventing Nazi spies from getting their, their hands on it. Great. And then he could just go from there. But even though, you know, he's, he's not very well known, but he's, he's kind of one of these guys that people like... Um, Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler sort of basically claimed as one of their own, as, as, the, as one of the writers that got them writing in a certain way. I think, I think you're right. I think, I think that there's a lot to be grabbed from, from these guys back then. And I think their, their influence is still felt today in a lot of uh, what we consider story. Mm, absolutely. Um, and especially in the, sort of the three-act structure, four-act structure, mm. um, and that kind of storytelling that we, we buy into. One other thing that I, I'd like to mention in the story, which we haven't done, is he talks about uh, sidekicks. Ah, yes. Uh, and uh, to quote him, there's always a sidekick to make the responses a hero isn't allowed to make, to get frightened, to add a lighter note, to offset the hero's morbid pictures, and so on. Mm. And I think that's that's very true, and it's often forgotten and this is kind of where the technical aspect of writing comes into play versus I suppose the more art aspect of writing yeah that a lot of good stories the very fantastical stories have a audience surrogate mm. and what I mean by that is you need a character who the audience can go well if I was in that situation that's what I'd do 
Yeah, absolutely. I always uh, think of um, Doctor Who's companions when I think of that. Exactly, and it, it, it isn't to say it has to got to be a you know a human of the modern day. I mean, if you look at Lord of the Rings, Bilbo, no, Bilbo um, Frodo hmm. is the audience surrogate because he's like that's a giant spider. That's you know he's the one taken from a world and shown these fantastical things. And you need a character or somebody to kind of go, that's a dragon. <laughs> Dear God, that's a dragon. <laughs> what the hell? That thing's like. 20 stories high and it's talking to me I would say that with a you need a level of um, balance here mm-hmm. otherwise you end up with a Basil Expedition where you have a character who doesn't know anything and has everything explained to them and it becomes kind of by, by rote basically that you have uh, all the plot and all the story explained to this one character and they don't exist for any other reason so it's, te- it's, it's the whole as you know Billy yes that kind of and, nonsense. Exactly. And, and the technical aspect of having this character has to be balanced by, A, writing a good character. Hmm. But I think that if you want to if you want to take your story in more fantastical routes and more out there storylines, having a character who for whom it, it is fantastical as well is very useful. Obviously, if you're dealing with hard sci-fi and some of the sort of the more um, science fiction elements... It's hard to do because people from that time will know all that stuff. Mm. Um, but that's where you, kind of, you, you as the author, will find that balance between wild future versus minor future. I mean, yeah. a great example of this is, and this is quite a, a obscure, pool, is the the Black Library from Games Workshop. Okay. Now, Games Workshop, obviously, High Street Gaming Store, do a lot of writing of the books around the series. Yeah. And in sort of the Space Marines or the future one, they have what's called this very name, like the warp, the um, the sort of uh, horizon, the horizon's edge, um, the like the de- um, deep rising, the uh, underneath the world, the really like the horrors of of deep space, right. and it's a lot of it about the Space Marines experiencing this and being horrified by it as well. These are future soldiers who are eight feet tall and they shoot rocket launchers out of their hands. But what they're experiencing is still fantastical to them yeah. and horrific. And that's a great example of where you can take a character who is nothing like the, like the reader and nothing like the world they live in. And in many ways, that character would be the fantastical element. Mm. But they become that audience surrogate by nature of what they're dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the other element I want to just quickly mention is there, talking about my characters, is that he has a great bit of a voice, which is, when in doubt descend into a minor character mm. and this I think is a great way to as you said it was keep writing if you reach a point with your main main character your main character you're like I've got no idea what they're going to do next I have no idea how to get them out of this this dragon's den don't basically for kind of set that aside and pick it up from a minor character in the same world somewhere, and kind of go for them a little bit yeah this I think Sort of helps with two main things. I think Rob will have probably more than me, but a one it might lead you to the answer what to do with your, your other um, main character, but also it keeps you writing in that world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and number three, I'd say it's just got that useful kind of cliffhanger aspect to it as well. Mm. If you sort of leave leave your hero dangling over a pit of lava, and then cut away to what joey the psychic's doing sort of three caves away that you know that 
that just instantly just creates drama as well because because mm. you, you know as 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 rob says yes that can give you the the solution to the problem maybe joey's in the cave and he presses a button accidentally presses a button that pulls the ratchet that actually lifts our hero back away from the mix or he makes things worse by pressing another button and all of a sudden there's a horde of goblins that descends but you're still writing and you're still pushing the story on so it mm. works brilliantly that's that's a really great bit of advice and I say I, I always listen to you there I the fourth one to that it leaps back to something earlier mm. about it lays breadcrumbs for later that if you the more you can have in your story the more you can pull at the end to tie all together mm. and maybe Joey's story doesn't go anywhere but in Joey's story maybe you mention I don't know Pokemon the Brewer <laughs> um, as, as a minor character mm. later on when you hit a low point well now you've got Bugman the Brewer as as a, as a weapon in your arsenal to go back to to try and write more with yeah and so this is what we, we, we always stress keep writing because as you say if you keep writing the more you have on paper the more you can work with the more you can write it's kind of exponential is the more you write the more you have to write mm. and the, the only way you put, put bullets in your gun when writing is writing yeah yeah, you, you can make your own bullets, but you have to make them in the first place. Exactly. That's a really strangled metaphor. So, um, I, I feel I feel in this podcast we've, we've killed several metaphors. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure. I feel they need to take our writing license away from us, given some of the uh, the analogies we've come out with today. It's yeah, it's a fair point. You know, uh, I, what the hell? Why not? I, you know, I'm quite, I'll quite happily mangle a metaphor. Exactly. So we'll throw some links to the article itself up in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so please check it out we really really do think it's it's worth reading absolutely it's given me tons of ideas for um, how I'm going to be structuring my next piece which I need to be cracking on with sooner rather than later anyway but there we go uh, anyone who's ever written anything knows getting started often is the hardest part and this method and this structure is very easy to get writing because you've done a lot of the work beforehand absolutely right so as always we end our podcast with inspirations of the week mm-hmm. so rob well my inspiration actually came from a couple of weeks ago um i had a week away well, well had a couple of weeks off work and as part of that we took a day to whiz up to bletchley park very which, nice home of the um british code breakers that effectively won world war Two. And it is just the most inspiring place to go and sniff around. Um, The work that's gone into it so far to actually get it into a kind of tourist attraction kind of state is remarkable. You can now wander around a lot of the code-breaking huts and they've been restored to the way they look back in the 1940s. But the stories that come out of that, that place and... The general feel of it has got a very, very interesting atmosphere. It does feel like somewhere that's got a very important history behind it. And mm. I think if you're at all interested in in the area of, of espionage or or indeed of, of sort of World War Two or the history of people like Alan Turing, it is so worth a visit. So um, it's not the cheapest to get in. Unfortunately, it's it's sixteen seventy five to actually get yourself through the door but that does basically open the door to you for a whole year so if, if you're like me and you don't actually get to see everything that's in there because it is a full day then you can always pop back so definitely worth your time and your money 
Excellent, excellent. I'll check that out. I'm going to sort of do one and a half inspirations. Okay. Which is kind of... Uh, my actual inspiration uh, is a book called Little Brother. Uh, oh, yeah. Cory Doctorow. Exactly, exactly. Now, I read this when it came out, and I've re- reread it in the last week. Um, and it's, in many ways, like a blistering attack on modern-day surveillance culture and all that sort of thing. But it's also a great book. It's a, it's a cracking, pasted book. You really kind of care about all the characters, but it's also there's a lot to there's a lot of information in the book. It's it's it's, well, it's, it's not I hate using the phrase, but edutainment um, only because I can't think of a better word. Yeah, it, that, it, would, that would do a, a pinch, I guess. Yeah, it, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a better word for it, but basically it's but in, in various zombie novels or vampire novels, they often talk about how Mary Shelley's um, early novels and Dracula and that kind of thing weren't fictional stories they were basically a how to kill zombie vampires hidden in a novel okay so sort of an instruction manual exactly and that is very much what i feel Corey's going for with this book in that it is a fictional story about a terrorist attack and the after effects but it's also a lot in there about cryptography about hacking about the technologies around surveillance and i think that there's a element of hiding your thoughts in plain sight when it comes to this book mm. um, and I think it's very good my half recommendation which mm. isn't a recommendation at all and it is a recommendation to avoid unless you want to experience bad writing is a film called Knock Knock oh I knew you were going to go for this one uh, now anyone who follows me on Twitter um, will know that I saw this film last week and I my, my vitriol about it was fairly vitriolic fairly vitriolic I, I think it's one of the worst films I've seen in a long 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 time I think that the the writer should be ashamed of himself I think it's, if it ever it was yes anyway I think that if you want to look at bad writing and understand how a maybe a good idea of a story can go very badly wrong with bad writing this is a great example of that the plot is pretty straightforward but the dialogue is nonsensical the characters have no throughput no no story for them they they swing wildly from one extreme to the other there is no subtlety to the writing whatsoever I'm well aware that it's not a thing to say and then go see it but I would suggest if it comes out on Netflix, if you can see it without paying any money for it. Not that we so, recommend pirating at all, n- of course. N- not, I mean, I genuinely mean things like Netflix, Hulu, eventually it will come onto one of these services. Mm. Um, it's worth looking at in a case of this is how to, not kill, to how to kill a film or a story with bad writing. And I think that there's, ed- there's education in seeing something done so badly. I, I really wasn't interested in, in seeing this film up until right now, and now I am kind of intrigued. <laughs> it, I mean, I, genuinely, I, I went to see it with my wife. Uh, she left 20 minutes in. Wow. Uh, and anyone knows my wife knows that she will watch any old crap. Um, and I was reviewing it for, for, for a website, and if I hadn't been reviewing it, I would have left too. Blimey. Okay. Um, it was it it was terrible, and it got no better at any point in that film. Um, so that's my my half recommendation. But genuinely, I would say follow our first recommendations. They they'd be much more interesting, exciting, inspirational than my final one. 
Absolutely. Um, Corey Doctorow, just as a sidebar, has written a lot of um, very good young adult science fiction that does tend to take this edutainment. I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing the um, the inverted commas bit with my with my hands. Yes, we need, a, we need a better word for that. Um, not off the top of my head, actually. I think edutainment is a terrible word, but it does actually explain what you need it to. Um, Reithian model, I guess you could say. You know the whole BBC thing about yes. um, informing and entertaining. Um, for fiction. Yes, absolutely. In but, fiction. <laughs> It's not going to work, is it? No. No. Um, but yeah, any of Corey Doctorow's young adult science fiction is is worth reading because because of his um, interest in, in inf- the information society. Um, For the Win particularly is very, very good. It's um, about yes. um, game mining and um, gold mining in, in the gaming industry. So definitely worth, worth checking that one out. Cool. Okay, and on that bombshell, I think we'll um, we'll close out for this week. Um, Rob, um, how can people find us? You can find us on Twitter at Versebooks. You can find me individually at Rob Kaiju. You, he's, he's changed the name again, folks. Um, yep. I, I've, I, I am always on Twitter as uh, Konohito, C-O-N-O-J-I-T-O. One day you'll have to tell me why. <laughs> what, why Konohito? Yeah. Um, or is that a story for not on the podcast? That, that that that's that's a long and very uninteresting story, but maybe someday. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, thanks again for listening, folks. Um, you can find us through the um, through the first publishing website on uh, iTunes. Are we on iTunes now? We are on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. Please, if you do listen to us on iTunes or Stitcher, go give us a review. Give us a give us a like. Give us a rate. Um, it really helps us get in front of more people's eyes and ears. Absolutely. So please, please go and do that. I know it's it's kind of everyone asks you that on the podcast, but it really does help us. More listeners. More listeners are always good. More listeners means more lovely stuff from us and better writers all round. Amen to that. Okay, Thank you guys. We'll see you soon. Keep writing. Bye. Bye. Write Up is a production of Verse Publishing. Please check us out on Twitter at Verse Books and Facebook as Verse Publishing. See you next week!